If you enjoy our podcast, including the developer news, the Cherry Tech Cast, business of development, uh, we have something we'd like you to do for us. Uh, we've been trying to get uh, the word out about these podcasts for the last couple of years, and we found the perfect place to do so. It turns out that Lifehacker has a nice uh, site. Uh, a little page that they put up called the best informative brain-boosting podcast worth subscribing to. And so it's not really a contest, but it's like a good kind of list system. Uh, so um, there's a Lifehacker podcast, which is driving this. And uh, you can go and, and you can submit uh, your podcast to this thing. Uh, and so what I did was I, I put together a simple link on emergingtech.charitysolutions.com slash shout out, all one word. We'll redirect you to this Lifehacker page. And so uh, what they do is they have in here... Um, let's see. We, it says, uh, aside from the Lifehacker podcast, which we all hope you love and already subscribe to, there are more podcasts out there to listen to than there are hours in the day. Whether you're interested in movies or pop culture, tech news and commentary, food, drinks and how-tos, etc., uh, things that are worth time to listen to. You just have to submit an image of the podcast or a title card, which you can get from subscribing to us on iTunes or an RSS feed. Uh, put a comment in there as well and say why did you love the podcast. And so this is in the comment stream of this particular post. So please uh, give us a shout out. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, my golly. Ken's in a punchy mood. Ken is uh, still jet lagged. Um, I, uh, I don't like jet lagged Ken. You know what? Yeah, jet lagged Ken's not safe. It's not safe. <laughs> not safe. I'm not like, safe. Ken, for today's podcast, I'd like to have a code word. <laughs> When I say Rolades, that means... <laughs> you're drinking caffeine-free when you're jet-lagged? Oh, this That's is empty. Problem, this dude. is There's nothing in that. Chariot Developer News. What, what, what episode are we at? 68? Someone find out for me. What, you know what? This is called padding. Hey, guys. How's it going? Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Monday. I, I apologize. Last week, uh, Mr. Ken decided to take a nice little break from... Uh, working on our new website and all these other things, and go to AndDevCon 2013. So I was away. I apologize. I had all the best of intentions of uh, doing all sorts of podcasting while away, and the best I could do is mix down another business podcast on the flight back because Virgin Airways is the most awesome plane to fly on in the world. It's the best. Power, Wi-Fi, everything. Fantastic. And five hours to kill. I can get through a podcast. Um, so it's, it's Terry Developer News, episode number 60, 68 for Monday, November 18th, 2013. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. You got to get close. I'm Sujan Kapadia. <laughs> and I'm Joel Kapadia. Hey, we're all here. Uh, the band's all here. And we have a lot of stuff to cover today, so I don't want to take up much more time. Let's start with some uh, startup death. Uh, unfortunately, bad news if you were a photography geek. Um, one of the biggest problems that I have, and I've been doing photography since uh, 1997, uh, digital photography since my first son was born. And I found an ever-increasing stack of raw images and photographs that I don't know what the heck to do with and pray that my hard drive doesn't die. So everything I live in fear of is that last copy of that volume dying. Um, I have it on like five different pieces of media and every time it's not up to date, it gets worse. Well, I found this nice little uh, company, Everpix. The name Ever makes it sound like they're always going to be there. Uh, Everpix is a company that would take any source that you could provide them, uh, folders on your hard drive, Facebook, Dropbox, um, iTunes, or not, not iTunes, iPhoto maybe, things like that, and it would pull all of your pictures in 
and deduplicate them, which is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, it had a wonderful user interface that used WebP video or WebP um, images that uh, would let you go through very quickly and scan all of your thumbnails, all the months, all the years. It had some AI in it, some, some processing that it would look at your pictures and say, oh, these are landscapes, these are photos of people, et cetera. It would send you like a, a really cool, um, you know, like flashback email every week, like here it was five years ago today, eight years ago today, and it would rank your photos and see how clear they were and pick the best ones. I'll tell you, I loved this startup. Apparently, no one wanted to buy this startup because they were at the point where they were going to be sold to someone uh, and the deal fell through and now they are dead. Uh, they cut off all their sinking. They asked everyone to download their pictures and then they sent a nice little email out stating, uh, hey, um, if you want all of your pictures, we'd prefer you download them manually, but let us know if you want us to do it for you. But it might take us a couple weeks. So no more for a startup. So I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. I think it just kind of shows that building anything from scratch is really hard and that, you know, despite having a great product, there it's just a really tough endeavor. And so a lot of respect for entrepreneurs and people who do it. And sometimes you hear about the Mark Zuckerbergs and the stories that are wildly successful, but there are many, many, many other people who try through multiple startups, you know, the old uh, Abraham Lincoln lost like tons of elections before he was elected president kind yeah, of thing. Right. Like these people put in a lot of effort and blood, sweat and tears till they can make it work. I mean, there's a quote in this article, which I think really is the key to them, which is from, I believe their CEO, which was having a great product is not the only thing that ultimately makes a company successful. Yeah. They had a great product, but it can still be extremely difficult uh, you know, marketing and, and getting enough sales to keep you afloat. I mean, you had some really talented people in here. So um, there was a guy named, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Latour is his last name. And he actually worked in a company called Pixel Shot, Pixel Shot Studio, um, sold his first company to Apple in 2003. They were the ones that did all the visualizations for iTunes, a little interesting graphics. Uh, worked on Quartz Composer. I'm sorry, no, Kevin Quinesson, another person worked with him, worked on uh, Quartz Composer. Uh, math and physics whiz. They both uh, went to Cool Iris, which did photo viewing software. So they, they had some pedigree there. A uh, whole bunch of interesting things that they did. And then they created this company uh, to deal with like a web version of Lightroom or, or iPhoto. So I guess my question is, unfortunately, since they fizzled out, have they decided to open source any of their code? Uh, no. And, and so, in fact, that's what bums me out the most is, well, first of all, the reason they're down, allegedly, in this article, two reasons, salaries, because they had decent salaries for people living in Silicon Valley doing their work. And if you're a startup, it's hard because you have to weigh good salaries versus your burn rate, right? Uh, that's one thing that has come up as a criticism. Another thing is they ran everything, ready for this, in the cloud in Amazon. And so you can think if they're only charging you like $40 a year, their fees far outstrip their coming in. Yeah, their, their revenue. I mean, they, they were up front and posted their revenue and stuff. And, and so they basically raised like $2 million in funds, but they only brought in 200000 in revenue. And, and unfortunately, that is a really tiny amount of revenue. Right. Um, so anyway, so it's an interesting article from TheVerge.com. The, uh, the writer of this is Casey Newton. I'll post a link to that. Very good reading. Um, I hope these guys, you know, uh, somehow save it from the ashes last minute. It would be nice. But I don't, I don't think it's going to survive. And it's a shame because it really is something that we need out there. Sounds like a really cool product. It was fantastic. I loved it. So, hey, guys, find some funding. I understand. Uh, okay, next, uh, you want to talk about functional reactive programming with Bacon.js. What is Bacon.js? 
So Bagekin JS is a JavaScript library that I was exposed to because the Hadle team, we use Flowdoc, which is an excellent uh, team chat program. And the Flowdoc uh, crew apparently builds their product on top of, uh, uses Bacon JS. So on its you know, GitHub account, it's a small functional reactive programming library for JavaScript. And basically, it allows you to, according to it, turns your event spaghetti into clean and declarative feng shui bacon. Oh. Sounds okay. tasty, and it probably looks good, too. But I think it just lets you clean up your code and not have, like, a bazillion callbacks. Right. So this, this D callbacks you into a, a kind of a, a, a serial list of events, so to speak? Yeah, so let, let's, let's get a comment from um, Reactive Juan Kenobi. That's a nice name. Yes. Go ahead. Why is this mic not Is this mic working? It is working. Okay. It is. So the concept here is you're taking a bunch of asynchronous operations, and you're composing them together. And what that essentially allows you to do is get rid of that callback hell and have like code all over the place. You can actually write cohesive code that's non-blocking in one place, and it's very declarative. So you're really telling your program, you know, what to do, not how to do it. And as I'm reading this article here, they also actually have referential transparency, which is the idea that if when you're referring to a variable wherever that variable is referred to, it's going to have the same value. It's going to mean the same thing. So you know, the compiler can make optimizations. It can basically write pretty clean code. And they actually enforce that in this library. So you actually don't have variables that change. You have events and event streams. And so you're writing pure functions that process data coming in. You're not working with like mutating variables and things like that. So I think it cleans a lot of that up, it seems. I haven't used it myself, so that's pretty much what I can say about it. Okay. Yeah, we're going to post uh, the, the, the blog entry from Flowdoc that discusses it, and I'll also post the uh, GitHub repo yeah. for BaconJS. Uh, Do you want anything yeah. more? What I did about? want to say was if you guys are, you know, Java people or .NET people, yeah. take a look at RxJava, which I think we talked about a few podcasts ago. I think we did. Which was open sourced by Netflix, similar concepts, reactive programming in Java, which is based off of Rx.net, which is a .NET library that actually started a bunch of this stuff. So it's pretty cool. Cool. Awesome. Okay, coming up next, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the brain drain, right? We constantly have brain drains in technology all over the place. Uh, when something gets really hot in industry, things go away from uh, the intellectual circuit. Uh, and so we have um, a paper here from someone in academia, I believe. Uh, the skills of academia are attractive to business and data science, hence we have a modern brain drain. So his article uh, is the big, big data brain drain. Say that five times fast, why science is in trouble. And so I'll just pare it down to one simple statement, is suddenly businesses really want the skills of statisticians and research experts because they have large amounts of data they want to process, and all us people in this room here are not scientific statisticians. So that's where they're going for big data people, and hence the term data scientist, which is a very interesting name. Uh, but it's basically pulling people out. And uh, Sujan, you have some thoughts about this, right? Yeah, so I have two comments on this. One is I'm glad they're actually discussing this and this is coming out. So I think something similar has been going on in uh, India, which I have a lot of family from, the last 15 years, where a lot of engineers now, whether they're mechanical engineers or physicists or whatever, they go into IT because that's one of the highest paying professions there. So universities and academia and even other companies are losing a lot of the people that traditionally you know, do mechanical engineering and physics, they're just all going into IT now, you know, working on business applications and business problems. So they're, they're suffering the same issues, and I think maybe now that's even happening here, except with, with data science, that's where the big surge. Another way of looking at this is, what if some of these people that are going from academia into 
you know, actual uh, companies are actually automating you know, the solution. So like while they're in ac academia and researching problems, maybe they're writing software that's using the power of computing to solve some of these problems that normally humans would have solved. So it, it may still be a net like balance that, okay, we're leaving academia, but we're automating the solutions, which we didn't really have a chance to do when we were working for universities. So it, it may not be a loss. Yeah, and this kind of brain drain does happen. I mean, I remember back in the whenever, 90s, when I was on a team, we were doing JSPs and JEE was big, and on my team was somebody with a PhD in rocket science, for real, and a PhD in neural networks, for real, Yeah. and then there was me with a nothing. And, <laughs> Don't and, sell yourself and I was leading the team, and I was like, something is terribly wrong when these <laughs> highly educated people you know, are doing JSPs with me. But <laughs> it really just came down to it that, you know, the dot, you know, the, uh, whatever, the, the dot-com boom that, you know, the incentives were out of whack for science. And I had yeah. one of, of another friend of mine who's a PhD in physics. I have a lot of friends who are PhDs, just not me. And, um, you know, he was saying basically, uh, unfortunately, the, that science didn't pay in a lot of cases. And that, as a country, is kind of out of whack. I mean, we obviously want to be excellent in those fields. Right. And, you know, they're, they're coming up in, the, in this paper, he's coming up with a thought that, uh, you know, he's got a couple uh, of ideas, um, one of them which being, you know, continue to press the importance of reproducibility in academic publication, um, meaning that, you know, you've got to be able to verify with other tests by other groups, you know, kind of like they do in physics and other places, um, uh, that have open, well-documented, well-written code. So now, again, you're dealing with salaries of professors and we know that the big push now has been for the administrators to make more of the money in academia uh, and that the professors are fighting for their wages. You will hear that, that particular perspective. You'll also hear politicians say that, that they don't make enough, that they make too much money and it's all these expensive professors. But when you look at it, it's really mostly the administrations that are making all the money, unfortunately. So there's an issue there. Like you know, if you're going to have that kind of hard work, you've got to have people that were willing to stay there and do the job and not leave for a better paying job. Um, second, push for a new standard for tenure track evaluation criteria, uh, which includes creation and maintenance of open so source software along the lines of you know, academic you know, teaching. So I have a brother in academia, and he's a performer musical. And one of the reasons he got his tenure track is from doing performance constantly because he's a performing teacher. And that was part of, like, you know, if you're going to be a professional musician, be a professional musician and teach, you know, as opposed to just being an academic only. Um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, interesting. And then the comments are also industry. And they go back and forth. Uh, worth the read. Yeah, because you look at then Google and Amazon, and they produce academic style papers. Right. If not, and yeah, so, that's true. And all that stuff, you know, those papers, then people go off and build products. That's so, right. So don't they, in many ways, function like the universities in a way? That's a really good Because it's point. open source. Yeah. So when it's closed, when companies are just building it, and nobody can, then they're the only ones who can benefit. But when it's open for the community... Maybe this is just another better way of, you know, getting this research done. That's a great point. I think we're all thinking. <laughs> all right. So Jake Vanderplas is the person, uh, and jakedevp.github.io on his blog. All right. So let's move on. Uh, I have a couple from, actually, I spent a week in flight and hotel areas with Rich Friedman, and uh, he's one of our charioteers, and he had some uh, interesting things. Uh, first one that he pointed me out uh, was dealing with uh, designers when you're dealing with mobile projects. And so he uh, had a large project with tons and tons of uh, images from the designers that would give them to him in layers in Photoshop. And then he would have to pull them apart and then export them and put them into icons in Android, in different sizes and things like that. So he was looking around for a solution for automating that. And uh, this was back in August. He came up with this blog entry and this GitHub repo with this script. 
Turns out that Photoshop allows you to do um, JavaScript to automate it. I didn't know that. I'm going to play around with that when I get a chance. Um, so there's a, there's a way that you can take a uh, JavaScript and have it automate the sizing of things. So he found this script uh, by Daniel Wood of runloop.com. He has a pastebin link to it on his uh, graybeardedgeek.net <laughs> post. Uh, and uh, so he has a little uh, script there. Uh, and if you navigate over there, uh, you'll see there's a little uh, JavaScript pastebin. Uh, and it goes through and resizes different layers for different purposes. And that's really cool. But he had to do it for iOS because iOS has a slightly different uh, syntax. I'm, not, I'm sorry, for Android, because Android is a slightly different, you know, things like the locations to put them in, the, the breakpoints for the sizes have certain naming conventions and things. Uh, so he put together his own based on that, and he put it on a GitHub account, uh, github.com slash rfreedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. And if you go there, there's an export Photoshop layer for Android project, uh, and he has both the script itself and a readme. So, Excellent. Yeah, kind of cool. So if you're a mobile person and you get designers sending you, you know, layers that you have to work with in Photoshop, this is something that can help you out. And he also, of course, has a link back to the iOS one. Uh, so that's that. Uh, he also then, uh, we were looking at Bootstrap, and he found a very interesting article uh, called Bootstrap Without All the Technical Debt. Uh, and this is uh, from Coderwall, Dan Tao. Uh, and he, he uh, was considering... Uh, this guy that you end up kind of getting all this massive technical debt attached to using Bootstrap if you use Bootstrap. Hmm? In other words, like, you know, if you think about it, I'm starting to directly wire my UI CSS code to be Bootstrap CSS code. Uh, and so the problem is that, you know, you have the structures like row or call-lg-10, right? Not super semantic, more like mechanic. And so you can't think like, you know, this section means this many columns. There's no indirection level there. So his point was, you know what? Better way to do it is to write semantic markup and then have SCSS, a CSS transformer, transform yours into what really need to be bootstrap directives. Hmm. So um, I'm not the best CSS person in the world. But uh, looking at this blog here, um, you know, he has one, he's an example. He says, here's what I mean. Uh, so you have a bootstrap HTML layout, and he shows it. And you've got things like a div that has a heading in it uh, and a content block. And it's, it's using call large nine, C-O-L-L-G-9. Um, so if you did semantic markup instead uh, for this thing, uh, and he has row above it and other things, but he turns out and says, well, maybe I can make it so that I've got a document that has a nav. The nav has a list. The list has items in it. And then it's got an article with a heading and a paragraph. That's what you really want to see when you're looking at it is the semantic markup. And then using SAS, um, he can extend bootstrappy classes in SAS and have it turn it into the actual bootstrap stuff. So yeah, so I mean, so basically this is saying if you can take, um, you know, CSS and transform the uh, semantically nice markup that, the, that you have with the navigation sections and articles and things like that and stay away from the weird semantic, uh, non-semantic divs and, and calls, um, you can actually then switch to some other UI without having a lot of pain. It's interesting. Unobtrusive CSS, basically. Yeah, like don't that. don't scatter it inside your HTML. Now, is it worth it then to take the extra step of what he's saying and like create this extra transformation, if you will, that takes your HTML and applies the bootstrappiness to it? It's a pretty interesting idea. Yeah, it looks like what it's really doing is he's he's uh, he's having the SAS processor expand out and create the transforms as just new styles. Mm -hmm. So the style does the equivalent of the 
uh, different column things. So it doesn't even need to transform the markup. It's really more of a more complicated CSS, but using SAS to simplify it. Right, which which Pretty I like. Neat. Yeah, it, yeah definitely. Like if you if, like in this example, if you had to create ten different forms, it'd obviously be nicer to just be able to apply this one time. Yeah. Than have to cut and paste a lot. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. All right, Nito. Should we go to the other Bootstrap news while we're on Bootstrap? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, simply that Bootstrap 3 is now a lot faster, wow. like 50% faster, which is pretty amazing. Like, why is it that much faster? According to an article <laughs> Sorry. that I read, is, uh, <laughs> that um, it is because it uses a new view layer, and actually... Um, I have the article moved up near uh, Rich's article up top. Got it. My link just flew around. Let me just pop over to that. So Bootstrap 3, why all the hype... Uh, they call it the matte paint job, so it has this new flat design, which actually makes it go a lot faster. Oh. That will change the look a little bit, though. I'd be interested to see, you know, what it, how much, and it has a few other things, but that's probably the main thing that that is behind the speed. It has different grid systems that looks more complicated. Maybe <laughs> right. that would be a case for what we just talked about, yeah. uh, which is getting the bootstrap out of your HTML. Um, and it has uh, other things like responsive modals that actually work. It Carousel. is a mobile-first kind of uh, framework, and uh, we use it on Hadle and, and like it. Um, but it does, I don't know, maybe because of its popularity, it does get a fair amount of criticism as well as benefit. Now, if you're the, I just heard this this morning on a radio show. If you're the biggest, <laughs> if you're the biggest guy in the fence, they're going to try to shoot you off. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think that's probably it with Bootstrap. Yeah. So, hey, I think I think Bootstrap's a great effort. Um, Amazon Kinesis. So this week, Amazon had a big event, keynote event that they live streamed. Pretty much anyone could view if they wanted to. Uh, around a bunch of sort of cloud-based services. One of the big ones being Amazon Kinesis, which is sort of their answer to processing large streams of data like click streams, uh, server logs, anything that's sort of you know high high rate volume of data coming in. And it basically takes your data, buffers it, stores it into Amazon Redshift, which is another you know database they have, columnar-based storage, if you guys are interested in reading about that, that allows you to run data warehouse queries all in the cloud. So, okay, now you're already using Amazon to do all your you know EC2, AWS, sort of cloud-based, uh, highly clustered things. Now you can take all that data coming in and run analytics on it. So it's actually like a one-stop shop. And it's nice how it just plays into with everything, and Amazon's really pushing forward for AWS and cloud-based services. And they're probably, honestly, the leader at this point, and they have the best stack. And Jeff Bezos is really, really pushing ahead with that, thinking that he feels it's going to be one of the key components of revenue for Amazon going forward in the future. I don't think there's any team as big and as sophisticated and smart as that team. I mean, putting out all these products, like every, last year especially, every month you would get a new newsletter and we're announcing this new product and that new product and this part of the cloud and this part. I mean, they've got so many pieces in that pie. And as an Amazon customer, I mean, hey, do we run on their platform? Like every month, something is cheaper. That's the other thing. That's nice too. So if you're a developer, the reason it matters is like the cost is going down dramatically. That's really good. Okay. And it's just a lot less setup a developer has to do because if you play with their stack, a lot of the stuff is basically inherently set up and they provide you a migration path for your data, easy to integrate, and the power of their machines now, which they've also you know talked about sort of upping the machines they provide and the amount of RAM and the number of cores, it's just crazy. You have another note in here about Amazon's relational database service. Uh, so, what's new with that? So along with that, I think they announced another thing, Amazon RDS, which is basically Postgres in the cloud. And let me go to my notes here. They basically allow you to run up to a three terabyte 
database instance, and I forget what the number of operations is, like 30,000 operations a second it can handle or something like that. But So you have scalable Postgres instances in the cloud. Again, if you need relational you know, databases, pure asset transactions, you have that too. You have your DynamoDB, you, know, you have your archival, you have the NoSQL stuff, but you need relational stuff, go ahead. We're going to provide you that as well. It's like, okay, I really don't need to go anywhere else to do what I want. So let me, let me get on my soapbox for a second. <laughs> go ahead. So, so we love Postgres at Hadle. We use Postgres. We use Amazon. I think that, okay, so I'm going to go throw this, just going to throw this way out there. Go ahead. 90% of the people who use NoSQL don't really need it. There they just are. use it because they're bored. I said it. Thank you. They, <laughs> they could use Postgres, and they would be probably 100% better off, but it wouldn't be as fun. I said it. Just Postgres uh, you know. takes so, JSON documents, so, so there. <laughs> You don't so, need it. <laughs> so, so we use Postgres. We were very fortuitous timing for this. We've been looking at our high availability stack and, and using Postgres clustering awesome. across multiple availability zones so that, you know, and different things. We were literally about to switch it over, and they announced this. And what were you, you going to use Heroku? No, no, no. We we're going to we have our own Amazon stuff, but we were going to oh, use Postgres. Yourself. Yeah, we we already have it running ourselves, but we were going right. to use some more of the high availability stuff. We sure. looked at PG Pool, which is like an actual. Um, anyway. Cl true cluster. So right now you run that cluster in EC2 yourself, is what right? Which is okay. not a big deal actually, because Postgres is pretty um, is pretty easy to run. Doesn't take a lot of tuning. Right. Like again, so just to really make everybody mad at me. So unlike Oracle, which you need like an entire <laughs> army of consultants to tune, um, Postgres pretty much comes out of the box the right way. And so, Mr. Goodfriend, okay, please step to the, step <laughs> oh, yeah. to the floor. They just made me read something. These uh, comments are my own and not my employer's opinion. Okay. You will and, never be invited to jumble one. And no. <laughs> and so anyway. You've just gotten banned. <laughs> with, with RDS, we are able to, um, the really nice thing is that, so we're switching over to that, absolutely. We're going to be able to scale um, very quickly. So when we want to bump up to a higher, uh, you know, more data, more processing power, very easy. And we get the availability built in. Again, this is all about cost. If you want to start a new product, you don't necessarily, a lot of this operational stuff, you can actually outsource, and the cost is ridiculously low. Joel, this is, this is Larry Ellison. <laughs> you were going to be on the next boat ride. You are now the anchor for the boat. <laughs> I'm not invited to his new Hawaiian island anymore. You're never going. All right. Sorry, Larry Ellison. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will be the counterbalance on that. I've set up Oracle before. It doesn't take an army of people. It takes an army of books, and it takes a couple days, bare minimum, to try to install it on, because the Java startup, at least this was years ago, it didn't run on every Linux box I tried it on. It made my hair fall Who, out. Who's but, the Oracle but, guy? Ask Tom or whatever. Like He has the answer to Tom, every Oracle thing. He's my hero. Yeah, he's the best, dude. He is. He's Count, awesome. Counterpoint, you're a one-man army. <laughs> hey, Tom, we, I don't know who we, you are, but you're awesome, dude. We don't have anything against Oracle. just want to tell you that now. Uh, Use right. the Oracle a lot. That's right. Um, Amazon RDS we talked about. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to talk about two things from, and actually three things from AndDevCon. No, four, but three. Uh, so AndDevCon 2013 was held just outside of San Francisco, uh, right near the airport uh, at the Hyatt down there in Burlingame, uh, California. Uh, both Rich Friedman and myself, uh, we went. Um, and it was, I, I would say as a conference, it was useful. I, I did meet a lot of Android developers um, and got to, you know, kind of immerse myself in that culture for a little bit. It seems like uh, it's a younger crowd. 
Um, not any aspersions, but it's definitely a younger crowd. It's more like, you know, when I went to the Rails conference, there were younger people there as well, and I'm ancient. And um, so they had a lot of talks that uh, were kind of introductory talks. I thought that if you really are starting from nowhere, uh, they're very useful from those talks. They had a few really deep talks. There was one guy in particular that I really liked, Don Felker, who had some really good talks on uh, things like uh, uh, fragments and how to communicate with a message bus and things like that. Uh, and there was a really good talk on concurrency. Um, I found a few other things interesting too. So first of all, um, we had one of the main leads for Android uh, come out and talk about what's new in KitKat 4.4. Um, that was a keynote uh, one morning. You could pretty much have looked at the uh, announcements from the web page about what was coming out with KitKat 4.4. Um, there are a lot of very interesting features, and I'm, of course, trying to find them now. So, and actually, I, I did take a lot of notes, so I'll pull that up. But uh, the Android versions page uh, has one on KitKat. So just at a high level, um, they're giving you uh, kind of like a centralized, uh, there's a nice little SMS integration where anything can, uh, can receive SMS messages now. Uh, there still is a central sender API and a sender, sender app, but anything can receive a, and, and register to receive an SMS message and act upon an SMS message, which is an interesting thing. Um, they've uh, improved the multitasking on it. Uh, uh, they've actually improved the speed of the touch response as well. Um, They've got, um, let's see, uh, printing will actually be a supported feature directly from the phone now. So they're actually, the, the, the cloud printing concept, any printer that's hooked up to that, any HPE print printers, any other printers that have drivers in the App Play Store. So there'll, there'll be something in the Google Play Store. Please uh, don't go API. crazy printing. Well, I know, but at least you can do it. I mean, I found that when I was printing for my iPad, I was very happy because the one time I needed it, it was there. Um, so let's see, uh, also they, they have um, Bluetooth uh, message access profile. So if you wanna use uh, Bluetooth cars that, are, that have all those features, they will be able to exchange messages. Uh, Chromecast support, there's a uh, better Chrome, uh, there's now a Chrome web view for the web view component as opposed to just being the standard built-in internet browser. It's from Chrome now. Uh, they have built-in uh, closed captioning support. So if you encode closed captioning in your videos, you can use that for accessibility. Um, you know, good device management. Uh, there's a, a remote wipe feature built in, yeah. Do you know if PhoneGap is going to be using that new Chrome WebView? One of the things I went to a talk at OSCON where they talked about performance issues in uh -huh. PhoneGap and because Android was using its not Chrome browser, which had so many more enhancements and, and optimizations that there are a lot of performance issues in actually rendering. And this, this is big news, actually. This could make the PhoneGap apps on Android a lot faster. Possibly. The only problem is, and, and the problem I see is, is adoption is much slower with the Android set. Although there was a lot of talk there, people just saying, you know what, the heck with all the old devices, we've got to start targeting new devices. You know, Android has a support library for a lot of their features, and you load it, and you get all, all these features like fragments and stuff backported. So you use the support library packages instead of the main packages, you get those features, right? So that's one way they solve it. I don't think you're going to be able to have a backport to, to run Chrome as the embedded. Okay. So it would be, you know, if, if you could turn on a feature and say, oh, yeah, for 4.4 and higher, use the Chrome view. Okay. That'd be great, you know? I, but I, I didn't hear anything about that. Okay. Um, let's see. And... Um, I don't know. They're, they're going to directly support IR blasters. So, for example, all the Samsung phones are coming with an IR blaster for remote control and stuff. That's more of a media thing. They're going to uh, let you have like low-power audio playback and support low-power Bluetooth devices from directly from the operating system. Um, and 
They're using Celix for their app sandboxes now, security-enhanced Linux. So uh, they really have like a real wrapper around your applications to make them a little bit safer. Um, and that's turned on by default and things like that. So a lot of interesting things. I'll put a link up there for, for what's coming in KitKat. Obviously, the only phones right now that's supported are the new Google phones. But, you know, they're looking down the road of getting companies like Samsung and others to, to support that. Maybe in your phone. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, okay, another thing I thought was kind of cool uh, was HP came out with a slate machine that is about $400. It's a 21-inch desktop machine that is running uh, uh, 4.3 of Android, so it's not yet KitKat, but it, I'm sure it will be. They, the engineers said they were. Uh, it's got a Tegra 4 processor, Bluetooth 3, a front-facing camera, 8 gigs of internal storage, expandable by SD card, uh, and I think they said 2 gigs of RAM. I'm not sure. Um, and it will be sometime in, and I think actually is available now is what they told us. Uh, it'd be about $399. Now, what was cool about it was it's basically a 1080p monitor with Android built into it, if you think about it. So if you have kids and you want to give them a computer to work with, hmm. it's like a low-cost computer. The worst case, they spill something on it, you lost $399. Um, and it's all in one, including the screen. So uh, it also will work with game controllers and stuff like that. Everyone was looking at this thing and drooling at it. So that was kind of cool in the, in the non-geek space. Do you know how much it weighs? I couldn't find that in the article. How much it weighed? Uh, no. Mm -hmm. it, when I picked it up, it wasn't all that light. Okay. Or it wasn't all that heavy. I'm sorry. Okay. Cool. Um, so, so I mean, beyond that, you know, they had uh, they had uh, a bunch of uh, vendors there. There's the biggest trend in vendors that I saw uh, people selling to them. Obviously, Intel's making a big move in. They're trying to get more more uh, vendors to support Atom as their CPU and to improve that process. They have a new. Uh, HTML5 IDE out as well. They were trying to, to tell people about it. It was really they purchased one. I forget who it was. Um, but they now have like an HTML5 IDE which can build HTML5 apps for them. Eh. Um, but they were talking about Intel. Uh, and this was kind of interesting. So to get their T-shirt, you had to go through a three-section thing. Now let's think about this for people who have to run conferences. Three different talks. The first talk was a recruitment talk. <laughs> That's evil, isn't it? I'm like, you guys are good. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Um, also, monitoring of apps is big now. So New Relic is there. A bunch of other companies were there. And they were talking about embedding your app with some basic information to monitor things like crash dumps and reporting and finding out statistics of who are using your applications and things like that. New Relic's totally awesome. I can give a thumbs up to that. I'm wearing the shirt right now. So, yeah. um, so yes, they were, they were interesting. There were uh, some vendors talking about a lot of monetization. So a lot of companies trying to figure out how to do ad revenue for you for your phones, which scares me because that's all I need to see is one more app that's free but bothers me with ads. I'd rather pay the 99 cents and not get ad blasted. Or the Bitcoin mining. Or Bitcoin mining. That's right. I forgot about that. So anyway, so um, I, believe this, I believe the slides for the show will be up at some point, And when they are, I'll, I'll bring that up. Okay, I don't want to take all this uh, time to talk about my stuff. So let's talk about I'm, Inception in the browser. So I'm actually going to squeeze the next three links together to sort of going to get on my browser as a you know application platform soapbox. Sweet. Go ahead. So first, this Inception in the browser thing is really cool. It's this group of people at uh, Stanford. It was their senior project. They're using WebRTC. If you're not familiar with WebRTC, it's a protocol part of HTML5, like everything else. <laughs> that is a real-time communication thing. So you can create like peer-to-peer -peer connections between browsers and video, chatting, audio, basically binary data. And they're creating a server in a browser. So yeah. they're actually using this to bootstrap, run a server in a browser, have other browser peer clients. And then once that's all set up, it's just purely independent and peer-to-peer -peer communication all within a browser. So you can actually run your entire app 
because you have all these other things that are involved with uh, HTML5, like sort of the the um, local storage, the SQL-based data storage, index DB, I think it's called. So yes, yes. I'm not sure how you know useful this may be right away, but the point is someone did it's it, right. yeah. and it's just crazy that how much you can do in a browser. And I was like, wow, you don't even. There's no mention of any server-side component here. The browser is the server. That is incredible. Very cool. Yeah, I want one. <laughs> I want to learn how to do it. So yeah, webrtc.org is the API they used. Yes, very cool. And then the uh, next two links are actually is pretty cool. It's about basically the power of JavaScript. So the first one is build a spreadsheet in 20 minutes in AngularJS. I'm sorry, what? Build a spreadsheet in 20 minutes in, with AngularJS. In, in AngularJS? What is Angular that? Can you tell me what about AngularJS? Two Actually, more can, mentions. Could you tell us about AngularJS, Ken? <laughs> Two more mentions and Ken I, gets a Bitcoin. All right. Ding. Um, please. <laughs> I would like one. Um, I, they're about 500 bucks, so I'll take one. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, AngularJS, the best JavaScript MVC platform there is. Learn it. Love it. If you're a Spring developer, you will fall in love with it instantly. I converted Rich on an airline flight over because um, he'd been looking at it and he'd been playing with it. I gave him some, some hints and he basically rewrote our timesheet app on a flight. And he loves it. So anyway, go ahead. So this is uh, building so, a spreadsheet in so, 20 minutes? Right. So this basically goes step-by-step step through a really simple AngularJS example. And the build, like an Excel, like obviously not nowhere near as powerful, spreadsheet where you basically have a table of you know input elements in a grid. And you can get to the data, store the data. So it just shows like sort of the model view framework behind Angular, the tags, and how you do everything like sort of in your HTML page and then have separate uh, JavaScript snippets. But it's a great example of AngularJS. It's a great example of the power of JavaScript and how quickly you can roll something. Nice. The, the next link is someone, I think, responded to this guy or something. Is okay, you know what? I'm going to do you better. I'm going to build a spreadsheet yes! in pure JavaScript in less than 30 lines. He's my hero. And this thing is actually really cool. It's actually more powerful than that because it does evals within the input elements. So you can have Get like mathematical expressions in there and formulas. And it's less than 30 lines of JavaScript. And you have a pretty functional spreadsheet, which uses local storage persistence. I'm loving this. And it's all in cool. JS Fiddle. Like, you guys had to take a look at this. It's just crazy. By the way, <laughs> JS Fiddle, also the bomb. Yeah, I, I love, love JS Fiddle. I use it for rapid prototyping sometimes. Yeah, it's the best thing in the world. If you have not played with it, go and play with it. If you're, if you're playing with the service, uh, what, sorry, if you're playing with um, JavaScript, the good parts, you should be having JS Fiddle open the whole time you're, re you're, you're researching it. It's the best. I thing. just love how there's like this string it's of incredible. apps the last few years. Like, you know, I'm going to do it in JavaScript because, damn it, I can. Like, yeah. Duke, Nukem, and Quake, and all these video games. Like, yeah. purely, like it's just ridiculous. There's a great Pac Man in JavaScript yeah, I've seen. Phenomenal. All right, that's great. So, yeah, we'll, we'll post both of those in the show notes. Um, Dart, Dart 1.0 is now released. Um, uh, apparently, uh, it was almost done. <laughs> it was almost baked. And now Dart went 1.0 um, just very recently. Uh, and so uh, I don't have much more to say about Dart beyond the fact that I, my understanding is that Dart is basically kind of like CoffeeScript. It's a, isn't it? Is it like a, is it a JavaScript front end language to recompile down to JavaScript? That's what I thought it was. Um, Dart to JS is like a tool that does that. And I think maybe that there's a Dart uh, native mode where it runs Dart directly. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I thought there was the native mode. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think where you only get... in Chrome, right? That's the that's where I think it is. But yeah, probably. I clearly prepped for this article. But um, <laughs> if you like JavaScript, the syntax, or is it a different language? What is it? I just mm. heard Google came out with a JavaScript replacement, which is Dart, and then okay. I checked out. New yet familiar. So if you look at Dart dot Dartlang.org. They have like Dart in five minutes, and uh, yeah, it's definitely a different language, but uh, ultimately can be turned into 
uh, JavaScript. So, so turn into JavaScript actually makes it a lot more useful because then you can actually use it now. I mean, it came out, they yeah. had their own VM. It was an interesting idea that Google was going to push, you know, like a different language, but it would obviously been quite a stretch to think that it's going to gain the ubiquity that JavaScript has. No, yeah. And so the, there's a command line tool, Dart2JS. I'm sure you could run that from Grunt. I'm sure there's a Grunt plugin for it. Um, and uh, so there's even a Dart editor, uh, allegedly, that will do this as well. So time to play around with Dart, I think, and see what it is. But uh, I'm, I personally, I'll get on my soapbox as well, I'm personally suspect of hiding anything behind another language. I never really went for the CoffeeScript thing, mm -hmm. although I know people who have because they were more comfortable with Ruby syntax. Problem is debugging. When, yeah, uh, the, right. So um, I also didn't like GBT either for the same reason. Yeah. Cross compiling into something else. Yeah. Leaky abstractions. You always got to see what's going on under the hood. Right. Right. So then we could always go all the way back to oh. well, you shouldn't use a framework then. Right. But, <laughs> true, well, true. But, but JavaScript itself is not like so horrific that you have no. to cover it up. I it's think that's right. really, I think that's really what what it comes down to. That's right. Yeah. I agree. There's a Dart. Uh, so I'm reading this article that you posted. There's a sure. Dart port of uh, Angular JS. No way. Yeah. I got to check that out. You can also do <laughs> AngularJS and CoffeeScript and a couple of other things as well. Yeah. So, coolness. There's, there's another port of AngularJS that they made. It's actually uh, for improved readability. It's called EmberJS. <laughs> I got to get my head I, I into just, Ember. I just had to throw that I, mean, I got to get my head into Ember. I, I, I like Yahoo. I, think I didn't cool. know Google was behind AngularJS. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they, I had no idea. I well, just read that right now. Misko, Misko Har Harvey, I don't know what his last name is. But uh, Misko is the, the leader. I okay. think they acquired him in a company buyout or something, I think. Okay. I'll have to do my bio research on him. But uh, he is rabidly running that team. He loves it. He's, wow, I had no He's idea, deep dude. into it, and that's, he's like their fearless leader. Okay. And uh, he has a name for himself out there, which is great, because you don't normally hear that much mm. from Google like that. But uh, they get out there and they proselytize. If you're learning Angular, get their Google Plus subscription. Sign up to the Google Plus user. Because there's constant updates from developers that are really hot on Angular telling you all sorts of cool stuff. Oh, good to know. Uh, I found something reactive. I should have put this up earlier, but uh, Spring has something they put up with. Uh, actually, the Pivotal organization, which is now you know the people that run Spring, um, they've created something called Reactor. Uh, Reactor is now 1.0. It was released for general availability. And it is basically allowing low-level abstractions for an event-driven reactive programming model and is a component member of the Spring I.O. platform mm. under the I.O. foundation layer. Interesting. It looks like it's backed by, some of it's backed by Netty, which makes sense. Yeah. It seems like it's based off the LMAX disruptor pattern, which we actually talked about, I think, the last podcast or yes, two we podcasts did. ago. So, a, couple, yeah. a couple ago, at least, yeah. yeah so. Um, so anyway, it's something to look at. I think we definitely want to spend a little time on it. I, I think this is definitely a call for us to reach out to some uh, pivotal developers for a podcast in the tech cast side, mm -hmm. because uh, we know a number of the people that are there, and it'd be good to find out who those, the committers are and try to get them on and talk about the, that particular framework on the show. Hmm. Neato. So we'll keep an eye on that. So uh, yeah, that is uh, the reactive framework. It's, uh, uh, it's spring.io, if you take a look at their, their uh, IO platform, it's all in there. Uh, and then there's a the last one. This just in, do code reviews. So who went to Philly RB? So uh, I went to Philly RB, Jolted. and uh, it was a really good meeting. Uh, it's at the Comcast building in Philadelphia, a really awesome uh, group of people, a lot of good uh, talks. But uh, Trevor Minot, I believe is how you say his last yep. name, Trev Mex, uh, he gave uh, at, at Trev Mex uh, on Twitter, yep. uh, gave a really nice talk about code reviews. And you think, well, code reviews, that's a pretty well-trodden path like you know that's why i put you know sort of captain obvious this just in do code reviews <laughs> but you know he, he made the case again and really what i think it comes down to is uh, his case was for 
you know, there's a continuum, right? And the, on the one end of the continuum is nobody looks at anything and it's a nightmare. And if, you know, the hit by a bus thing, if one person gets hit by a bus, you have no, you know, cross-pollination of information. Yeah. Then on the other end of the continuum, he says, and this is where I thought was interesting, you have pair programming, which is like continual code reviews. And right. he thinks pair programming is awesome, but it doesn't work for every team and it doesn't actually work for every personality. I thought that was a good insight. You know, there's just some definitely teams true. and people. very, very true. Yeah. It is so exactly... Oh, go ahead. No, again. Yeah. It is definitely like a continuous code review. I've done it on a few projects, and it takes a lot of discipline, but it works really well. But as you said, there's some personalities that don't like it at all. It's interesting. Those same personalities don't like unit testing at all either, I've noticed. Interesting. They just don't like the – they just want to write their code and get out. But his, his thing was, you know, so to be pragmatic, let's do code reviews. But rather than code review, um, and I guess this is just a small batches kind of thing, you know, doing right. things in small batches. So, you know, rather than code review in big chunks at the end, code review every commit, actually. And there's actually tools that will let you do this. One of them, um, you can certainly do this without tools. You can just say that, you know, we'll be disciplined and we'll code review every commit. But the tool that he recommended that they use is called Garrett, G-E-R-R-I-T, made by the Android team. It sits in front of Git, and it basically means that you can't push anything to Git without having a code review. It's open source. It's free. It has an ugly UI, but it works fine, and it works well. And so... Reminds um, me of Bugzilla, actually. So you just, you know, um, do these code reviews. You code review every commit. He said as a side effect, it makes commits smaller. Because, which is what you want anyway, because nobody wants to code review some giant thing. You're oh, not that's gonna, a good point. You're not going to get the people to code review your stuff if it's horrible. And he also said to, um, he personally errs on the side of trust and allows on the team anybody code review anybody else. So junior people code review senior people until they start making mistakes. They you get the learning. You're code reviewing every commit. You just kind of get in the sync. You know, get in the flow of it. Again, it's not like code reviews are new, but his. Um, and he also said it humanizes your coworkers, which is interesting. It makes you interact with them and be a little vulnerable uh, on a level that that you know, is very true. Constructive criticism. We, we yeah. found that it actually was like a great team bonding thing. To be yeah. honest, the pair programming on and, top of that. And then it's kind of like shared. Own, it really is shared ownership. Like so, if something blows up, like you can't just point at one person because at least right. two people looked at it. So anyway, um, not like code review is a new practice, but I thought he gave a nice uh, reminder of its benefits. And, um, you know, and we linked his, his slides there. Yeah. Cool. More and more companies, uh, so I've heard some talks on Garrett, are using Garrett. And as you said, they've all said, you know, if you can, you know, get away from the fact that it's an ugly UI, it's a great tool that's like natural for developers. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, that will do it for the developer news for Monday, November 18th, 2013. A couple things are happening soon. I know you don't normally say, hey, we're going to a new website, but since that's all I'm doing lately... We're going to a new website. And the benefit of that will be actually you will no longer have to type emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com to watch our podcast or view, listen to our podcast. You'll be able to just go to chariotsolutions.com and there'll be a menu there when you see it live that says podcast, screencast, and blogs. And everything will be in one place. We do a fair amount of content across you know, blogging and all these other things. So it'll be nice to be able to search for some of the topics you're interested in. For example, if you did a search on AngularJS, you'd find a bunch of things by a bunch of chariot people. Uh, and anything from you know, Spring all the way back to Ruby on Rails you know, five years ago, you'd find a lot of contributions. So I'm really looking forward to that. The emerging tech links will forward to that. So I'm going to give you the blog entry uh, article. I'm sorry, the, the URLs for us for emerging tech for now. It'll be emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. And if you go there, you'll see the blogs and podcasts. And, of course, that'll just redirect to our homepage, uh, and you'll see the blogs and podcasts uh, as well there. 
uh, and good stuff is coming. So if you want to subscribe, you can do that. You can go to iTunes. You can search for the Dev News Podcast, the Tech Chariot TechCast, and also Business of Technology Podcast. Those are three that we're doing. And finally, uh, we had our Data IO conference recently. I have in the queue one podcast um, from uh, Camille Fournier on Zookeeper uh, from Rent the Runway. She had a talk, and it was a perfect one for the podcast. And then we have our first video ready to go live as well. So if you go to the Emerging Tech site, you'll be able to see a new link, a uh, new drop-down menu for under the screencasts. You'll see a category for Data IO 2013 pretty soon. So look for that as well. Okay, so that's it. So for the developer news, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And I'm Joel Confino. And make it a good week.